think I'm living proof. You can be a world-class coach in areas that you've never worked at because coaching is more about working with somebody because they have the answer. It's about them. They actually have the answer in them, but it's about working with them to encourage them to explore a different side of themselves to how they can choose to be different or do something better. Maybe look at something in a different light. Welcome to the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO and founder of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. Tuning into the HR L&D podcast will help you to discover strategic growth concepts, leadership development strategies, and the values and behaviors that drive organizational change and success. Together, let's empower our workforces diversify our thinking and achieve significant HR success. Hello and welcome back to the HR L&D podcast. Today I am joined by Graham Ravenscroft, Lead Performance Coach at Gateway HR. Now Graham is not just a business performance coach, he's also someone who has supported the development of athletes at every major global championship, including the London Olympics. Now, alongside his business coaching, Graham has worked for England Athletics as a national coach mentor for High Jump, where he also develops the skills and experiences of coaches on the National Coach Development Programme, where he is helping to develop the UK's best athletics coaches. But more recently, or I'll say more recently, on the business side of things, during the last seven years, Graham's also been providing coaching support across many areas of business performance, where he's helped companies develop a culture of excellence within performance by utilising goal setting, strategic planning, leadership coaching, team building and more to really maximise team and corporate performance. Now, Graham also possesses a level five diploma in stress management, and he regularly delivers training on resilience, as well as on recognizing those signs and symptoms of stress which I'm sure we're all being more familiar with during the recent 10 months and this pandemic. Now performance is a subject that's really close to my heart. I cannot wait to get started so I'm going to begin. Welcome to the show Graham. How are you feeling today? Nick, I'm great. Listen, thank you so much for the invite. Always a great pleasure to um, chat to anybody that's uh, interested in people and performance and uh, to share yeah, some of my experience. So we're uh, really looking forward to this. Thank you. Me too. Me too. Now, for those I said, for those that know me, I'm a huge lover of sport. I will profess to being a qualified level two triathlon coach myself, not quite as experienced as you, though, of course, but I would love just to kick off this podcast by asking a question that I really want to ask, which is, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about your background today and in particular, some of your career highlights? Yeah, of course. Thank you. That's very kind. Um, so it began 35 years ago now, would you believe? I was an international junior athlete myself, long jumper. My coach at the time um, suffered from some illness, tragically, and um, I took over even at just a, my 20th year of life uh, coaching the squad that I was working in. Um, the club said, this is fantastic, and if you want to continue, but you'll need a qualification. So they put me in it, and there began the journey. I Just my love for it, the coaching, uh, the buzz, everything about it and it's just become a lifestyle and a way of life you know it has to be to be successful uh, just to give you some highlights on that journey um i guess i went through all the processes until i reached the um opportunity to acquire what well, work for and acquire a distinction in the iaaf's level five elite performance coach um, i've held a number of roles within the organization purely on a consultancy basis including like event group manager 
for developing coaches. And as you alluded to earlier, I spent uh, just under eight years as a consultant working on the National Coach Development Programme where my role there basically was as an experienced coach to create opportunities of personal development and learning for 26 of our top coaches. It was a fantastic uh, time for me. And again, my learning at that level, and of course, I, was in, I speak at national and international conferences as well on some of that learning. On a personal athlete level, as you said, you know, I've been really fortunate to work with some talented people and supported the development and contribution of performance progress to uh, four Olympic athletes. 2012, of course, I played a huge part in, in heptathlete uh, Louise Hazel. That was the 2012. Uh, there's a number of other people. And I also work with uh, a Paralympian, Jonathan Broom Edwards, who's one of my world champions. So two world champions. Just to let you know, 15, probably 15 years ago now, um, I was first invited to travel as part of a British team uh, to a major champs. And there began the journey, really, of learning so much about what I think high performance looks like in that kind of playing field. And being a part of a team that is responsible for creating and then maintaining that kind of environment where these high performers have the ability to be the best version of themselves in that moment. You know, there's a lot of learning. And, of course, a lot of that crosses over with all the sort of organizations and companies across industry over the last nearly 10 years now. There's a little insight, I guess, into a bit of experience. I could talk for hours about your sporting world, and I know that that's probably not all of my listeners are tuning in to find out about, but it's a huge passion of mine. But one thing I think that's really interesting and certainly relevant in the world of business is that, you know, you're you're obviously coaching some of the best athletes in the world, but it just goes to show you don't have to be the best athlete yourself to be the best coach and I think that really translates into the business world as well we've got a lot of managers particularly in the environment that I work in which is sales orientated you often feel that pressure as a manager of you have to lead from the front you have to make the most sales or how can I possibly inspire those below me you know to, 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 to live up to my expectations if I'm not the best but actually as you've shown in, in your experience I'm sure you've worked with many many other elite coaches as well where the cut you can be an amazing coach doesn't mean you have to be you're also an amazing athlete does that make sense uh, it makes absolute sense. And it's as if you've seen one of the opening slides from my CMI coaching and mentoring course that I deliver. Um, just to give you a little I haven't, bit of, I promise. <laughs> no, you, I don't think you have. But um, interestingly enough, one of the slides is a bit of a bit of picture board fun. And um, what I do is I put up um, six, everybody knows, um, let me leave it at that, from television to politics to sport to business pictures. Uh, and of course, with them is another person. And uh, pretty much people were no six out of six of the uh, performers. And of course, very quickly, they realized the theme that the other six are their life coaches uh, and performance coaches, and nobody knows them. And then the next slide, of course, in mentoring is where I share some of the great global sort of more well-known mentor mentiacs, you know, like Steve Jobs and Zuckerberg, uh, like Kathleen Hepburn and uh, Jane Fonda, for example, uh, Mayor Angelou and Oprah Winfrey and so on. And if you look at some of these, there's something quite relevant here. And that is very much when you're talking about mentoring, you're talking about an expert in the field, somebody with incredible amount of experience that can provide you with insight at a level beyond where you're working to, you know, to help you acquire some of those fine skills, say within a business, if you never sat in a boardroom, to talk to you about that experience and give you some insight. 
you can be, well, I think I'm living proof, you can be a world-class coach in areas that you've never worked at because coaching is more about working with somebody because they have the answer. It's about them. They actually have the answer in them, but it's about working with them to encourage them to explore a different side of themselves to how they can choose to be different or do something better maybe look at something in a different light. So, um, yeah, you don't need to be an expert in that field. And I think that's the same in your illusion, you know, a bit there. You know, people look at, a, I don't know, a top leader and think that they should be particular. Listen, they've developed skills in a particular area and they've taken that route. And their skill is leadership, hopefully. That isn't necessarily sure. on the tools or understanding a particular process within the industry. It is the ability to lead, be strategic, understand the politics, et cetera, et cetera. And actually, I mean, I will come away from the sporting world, I promise, but two uh, examples that I would reference that um, in two things that I'm passionate about. Number one is cycling and, and, and Sir David uh, Brailsford and what he did with the marginal gains piece for, for yeah. British track cycling, but also, and, and the Sky team, but also Sir Clive Woodward for the England win when we won the World Cup. You know, two individuals that you wouldn't necessarily think of as being world-class athletes at all, but have done amazing things in the world of sport through the way that they uh, have approached coaching. And, and they are great examples. And uh, the two, just to give you two back that I reference on the pictures, two incredibly iconic global performers. Uh, and I'm going to use these two coaches for a specific reason to talk about something else and think about this in business. I'm going to use Tony Minicello, who's a good friend of mine, and, uh, of course, the lovely Jessica Ennis, uh, Jessica Ennis-Hill. With all respect to Tony, and uh, he'll be smiling if he, God forbid, he ever heard this, because he might have been a wannabe sports person, but yeah, he certainly wasn't a successful sports person at any level. But of course, coached this young lady from the age of 13, well, knew her, I think when she was 11, but the age of 13, of course, to the very, very top of the world. And arguably, by the way, you know, pound for pound, I'm literally meaning weight, I would say probably the greatest female athlete that ever lived. Uh, I'll leave you listeners to think about that one but one thing that you would notice if you ever met her is how small she is so um, that's why I say that um so there's an example of somebody that coached somebody to the highest possible level uh, who didn't perform and then one of the other great relationships for me is Bob Bowman with Michael Phelps um and the reason I use those two scenarios because they're actually quite unusual and they're unusual because they both coach their performers from a very young age to the top of the world. Why is that unusual? It's because of the amount of learning and knowledge and insight that you gain across every level of that performer's development. Much as the same as in a company, with the, with the same teacher, teach an intern, all the way through to the CEO. Has anybody ever done uh, their degree with the same teacher that, that, that had them in primary school? Of course, the answer is no. Uh, and yet those two coaches did exactly that. They actually took these performers, grew with them, grew ahead of them across every single level of performance development to the very top of the world. And, and they would have been as coaches on the same learning journeys at the same time. I'm sure that's part of their inspiration would have been to stay ahead of the curve at every moment so as to keep their athletes in, in top form. So I guess they're, they're constantly evolving at the same time. Let, let's let's move it into the world of business then, because I mentioned in my introduction that you have got a lot of experience as well in delivering training in relation to stress in the workplace, which I think is now is worth having a, a bit of concentration on, and also in relation to resilience. So obviously we're going through, uh, you know, it's cliche to say it now, but new times, challenging times, new of work and all these different things that we're hearing but can you help for my listeners define what resilience means to you when we talk about resilience in the workplace and maybe provide some examples of where you've seen 
were you really seen with resilience in people or teams or organizations? Yeah, no, of course. Yeah, let, let me look at that. Let me start by giving you a sort of a, a bit of a kind of definition that you might have heard. There's there's a number of phrases like that define kind of resilience. So if you think of resilience or resilient people, you might think about this bounce back ability. You might think about getting back up and you know going again and strength and and of course they are all good examples of words that you can associate with resilient or resilient people. But I kind of think of it in two stages. So the, I guess the first level of resilience is indeed through the learning process, is that ability to indeed get back up each and every time that you fall down. But I think ultimately what resilience you're really trying to build here is not the ability to get back up when you fall down, but the ability to never fall down. But that's, yeah, crikey, that's difficult, you know. When you're developing a sports person, of course, you you only develop them past their end position by the principle of overload. So by virtue of that, you're actually working them beyond the position that they've ever worked. Well, there's a risk to that. But it's the same in business. When business enters new territory, you know, where are the weaknesses? The truth of it is we don't always know. But there are a couple of areas that I will share with you when the time's right in this in, in this podcast to sort of offer you some thought of you know, a few fundamental areas to look at. But that's the same thing there. And of course, when things come up and challenge us, much like we've all lived over this last 12 months and continue to live, I'm sure, well, don't want to downheart and everybody, but probably the next 12 months and, and I guess to some degree beyond, maybe changing the way we live permanently. But of course, you know, people have had to adapt. They've had to find new ways of working. They've had to maybe change what they do, change the way. And, and it's that kind of, that's the way to, I think to think about it. Let me give you an example again in my world. I, I made reference to Jonathan Broom Edwards. Um, when I started working with him, this guy is a disability athlete uh, born with telepes and club foot. So he has a left leg basically in simple that doesn't move, uh, hinge exactly the same as everybody else's. Uh, he has limited flexion a particular plantar flexion, and of course, um, very different, significant hypertrophy in both legs. If that wasn't bad enough and we're challenging, what we're trying to do is create, so previously trying to create this robust athlete. Now, in 2018, he became world famous for all the wrong reasons, and that was he became the only known telepes athlete in the world to fully rupture the Achilles tendon in that leg. Uh, so I started working with him literally uh, as he was in plaster. He came to me and approached me, and we put a team of people together to bring him back from that. And uh, I'm delighted to say at the back end of 2019, literally 18 months to the week, uh, not only did we get him back and get to Dubai to the world champs, but he won it. So, um, yeah, I mean, quite a story. And, and, I, and I think, you know, listeners here, you know, no, no interest in sport. I don't miss what we're talking about here. I think you need to kind of see resilience in a way that says what could go wrong? And actually, if we, not, if, we, if we can't foresee it and it goes wrong, it's the ability to act in that moment to halt. The first thing you need to do is reduce any potential or, or minimize any potential harm that could happen as a result of that event. And then, of course, it's about trying to get back on track or working in a different way or a new way or a limited restricted way that actually then prepares you for each and every next stage to get back to whatever the, the future goal looks like. Have you ever asked yourself, how can any recruiter understand my HR recruitment challenges? Please don't give up on your hiring challenges just yet. Here at JGA HR Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, 
recruiting and retaining top human resources talent. We also understand just how costly a poor hire can be. JGA HR Recruitment would like to partner with you to help you overcome your hiring challenges. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. With my experience of just reading about resilience, talking to other leaders about resilience, sometimes there can be, I guess, from my perspective, a misunderstanding about what people mean by the term resilience. And um, what I mean by that, you talk, you know, if you look at sport references, you'll often hear football managers talking about the character of their team. And often they're referring to the resilience of their team under difficult circumstances to prosper or to come through a difficult situation. But often people talk, when we talk about resilience, they think that means that they can't ask for help they've got to show strength they can't show weakness because they have to just keep pushing forward and actually from my perspective and i'm sure from you as well that's not what it's about actually it's about as this uh, the individual did decode to you with with, with his elements sort of went to you and said i need some support where do i go and resilience can also be about asking for help and asking for some assistance i'm sure but i wonder if you could just expand a little bit more about what resilience means to someone where you have got a lot being put on your plate at the moment particularly in hr and, and payroll and these kind of industries where you've got furlough calculations and legislation changing all the time people dealing with redundancies it can become overwhelming and it can be scary to show to others that you are feeling overwhelmed, but you also want to show your resilience to it. So if that was the call of case in point or example, how would you react to that kind of situation? Or how would you advise or coach someone in that kind of situation? Listen, it's a really good question, and I, and I like the direction. So let me try and give you some answer to that. I think one of the most important things is when you're in a moment like that, and we're all getting in that moment, this resilience in that sense is about being able to survive, isn't it? It's about coming out of the other end. If we, if we look at it in that sense, you have to be able to think what it is that you need, maybe where your strengths are to use them. What actual weaknesses do we have? And how do I deal with that? How do I minimize, I said to you, the effect, the negative effect of a lack of resilience in a particular area. So for example, if we need to diversify the way we work and we require different skills to do that, to get us through you know, working from home, uh, where we were working in the office, then of course it's about considering where that is. Where is that information? And you're quite right, is to go and look for it and ask for it. Exactly what Jonathan did. He's looked around and he's gone, actually when I look at the situation, the people I'm working with now, Will these people have the knowledge and insight and leadership to actually deliver me to where I want to be? And he made a choice that he wanted to change that. He trusted in me to have those skills. So in that sense, you're right. You know, developing future resilience within his body to not break again, to give him a chair. Well, it's got to get back first, but to then have the ability, uh, once he's got back up, to never be knocked down again. He's then, as you say, looking out, reaching out, recognising We need the information, we need the skill, we need the knowledge, we need the experience. And when you're developing teams, by the way, and organisations, if we look at that in the sense of how resilient is my team, then, of course, we have to look at how we communicate. And if we can't communicate, if something goes down, if we end up working in isolation and motivate, you know, how do we motivate our people? How is it done in the office? Actually, We don't see them anymore, or we're now not with them every day communicating. And it's kind of having that ability to to put all these things in place and recognize 
all the things that make up the ability to succeed in performance. And can I just touch as well, you talked about stress. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. If I think about resilience, I think about it in a number of ways. There's that physical resilience, okay? And there, so, for example, in teams, that's the right people, the right skills, yeah? The right communication, the right... There's so many factors within that. Adaptability sure. within you know, leaders where we need leaders and, and people in the right, you know, the right people in the right seats. That's what we need sort of in terms of resilience there. But in people as well, we need, we need robustness, don't we? But we need robustness in the right areas. If you look at the human skeleton and think about physical resilience and then relate this to your business, okay? If you think about a triple jumper, don't worry, you don't need to be a sports fan. If you think about a triple jumper, I've got the information for you. Now, they, on their step phase, register something like 15 or 16 times their body weight. Wow. Think about that. Yeah. How the, what, but that's Surely that's surgery, isn't it? But it's not. And, and there's so many factors which, you know, we're not going to have a lecture on that today, but there's so many factors why that isn't the case. But let me tell you why as well, because the human body is much like your business. Here we go. It's a lot like your business. In order for it to develop and be resilient to that kind of impact and load and stress. Okay, and I urge your listeners to think about that in a bit this in a business context. What the human body has is it has areas of the body which are designed not to flex, not to move. Stiffness. Okay. There's a reason they have to be stiff. And then, of course, exactly the same, there are areas of the business that are designed to flex that stiffness would cause a problem. We also have incredibly inbuilt in the neuromuscular system, okay, we have sensory receptors that are designed to slow movement down at the right time. There's little, there's, there's sensors that are designed to actually speed movement up. So where is that in the business? Because businesses need that too. Sure. They need a process or a person. And I kind of think, you know, to understand really what makes individuals resilient in a physical sense, is actually not too dissimilar in looking at cross departments and how departments work together to share the load. So I'm a visual learner, so I'm loving this. I think it's a great example. I just had images of the uh, the whole skeletal chain, as you say, the, the, the impact or the load might be isolated in your mind at the yes. knee, but actually it goes through the, the full chain all the way through the skeletal system, right, that, that, that right. helps burden that load. And I was Picturing that with different departments and different managers and all the different things and different components that make up a business. So for me, it was a great way of putting it. And stabilizers, you just reminded me, there's another thing. You know, we have uh, stabilizers in all of our joints because the joints are, due to, are supposed to move in a particular direction or directions or have a particular range. And we have stabilizers. Who's the stabilizer in your business? When we start to go off track, when we flex too much, who recognizes it? So it's kind of that physical makeup. Now, you talked about stress. Let me talk about that one. Because there is a mental resilience, isn't there? Now, there's this ability to get back up. We talked about that. But I think, you know, I really work. I, I, I'm going to urge you all at the end of this to think past this. I'm not saying that isn't a demonstration of resilience because it is getting back up. It's, the, it's, it's a requirement. Let me give you a quote. There's a quote from a book, Bounce. I don't know if anybody's read it. Your viewers, a fantastic book, a guy by Matthew Saeed. I've read it. And it's about resilience. And he said, it's a fact that top ice skaters fall down more in practice than they do in competition. So excellence is therefore about stepping outside of your comfort zone, training with the spirit and endeavor. And it, 
expecting the inevitability of trials and tribulations. Progress, therefore, is in effect built upon the necessary foundations of failure. And so that's that kind of resilience that we need to accept that we do have to get back up because working past your end position, we're going to be required to make decisions on information that we've never seen before. We're going to, we're going to be asked to sort of you know, uh, stop, take action and stuff for the very first time. So there's that element of it. Now, in terms of the stress element, let's just, I think this is, you decide, I think this is uh, worth just a, just a minute of time here to reflect on the severity. <laughs> this stuff that goes out, listen, as a really interested stress management consultant who 10 years ago spent 18 months of his life putting together 104 words uh, to get a qualification. It's about the practice since. But what I, 30 years, by the way, in the fire service, I haven't even mentioned that. That was the day job for all of this coaching. 30 years of whole-time fire service. Uh, ended in 2017. And when I looked at that, and then I looked at people at the Olympic Games, I started to consider how much of a massive impact that stress is on performance. Okay, so if we're trying to build mental resilience, and do we need to? Yes, we do. When Theresa May in 2017 commissioned the Stevenson Palmer Report, uh, she did it for a reason, because the cost at that time to the British government was between 24 and 27 billion, yes, billion pounds a year. In 2000, I think it was 16 for the very first time, there were over half a billion separate cases in this country. And that's growing. It's, um, I know the latest figures, 2020, were uh, in excess of 600,000. Right. So we do need to be scared of it because it's costing us. It's costing us in, in days at work. What it's also doing is actually massively affecting this team and organisational resilience. And I'll tell you for why, because when somebody's off with stress, what statistics say is the average amount of time off per case is 23.9 days. So this isn't like two days with a cold. This is significant loss. Now, you're not replacing those people. The average person isn't replacing those. So who picks up the load? The rest of the team. So it's, it's kind of the knock-on in terms of that stress load. Does that, does that make sense to you there? Yeah, it does. It, 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 makes, it makes absolute, complete and total sense. So if I'm listening to this as an HR director, I'm an HR manager, I've got a team, I can, you know, what are the signs I should be looking for then to help identify, A, where I've got potential weaknesses or strengths in resilience? And, you know, they are quite closely aligned in different ways, but also, you know, how do I identify either stress points or, or, or potential stress cases, maybe. People are being overworked, maybe not confronting yet, not aware of it. And I know a lot of this is we, we much prefer, as coaches do, prevention rather than cure. So, you know, what can we do to try and get ahead of ourselves to try and, you know, build up that resilience and reduce the amount of stress within a, within a, within a function, particularly when you've got so much on your plate at the minute? What are some of the strategies you would, uh, you would recommend? Uh, no, so, so really good. I, I, I tell you how I think I want to answer that because I'm conscious of listeners and how this comes over. So I want to give you something quite tangible to go away and, and, and look at so it's not limited to my explanation. I'm going to give right. you six words, and these words come from the HSE's management standards. So what they're saying, these are the six single biggest contributors of causes of stress, okay? So the first one is demand. So that's the area one should look at and monitor. 
That's demand. When we're talking about demand, just to give this some wider sort of um, understanding and perspective, we're talking about not just about how much, we're talking about when, as in seasonal, because we can plan for that, can't we? We should plan for that. If it's seasonal, around Christmas, around Easter or something, and you know that happens around the winter, around the summer, then again, it's something we could, should plan for to help avoid the impact of stress. But demand's also about the number of hours worked. Now, interestingly enough, I wonder what the impact is of people leaving the office and going home. Are people working less or are they working more? Now, I'll tell you what, what technology has done for us in recent years, all right, is actually increase those amount of working hours. Why? Because they put the world of work in our pockets on our mobile phones. We're never away from an email. We're never away from the boss. We're never away from, yeah? So it's there. So that kind of demand. So it's the amount of load, yes, the amount of hours, when the hours are, the working week, the days. Of the, so all of this stuff we should look at. The other thing we should look at is control. There's the second management standard. So when we're talking about control, we're talking about how much control does the performer have in what the way they choose to do something or maybe when. And I think a lot of the change in demand of dictating when we have leave and breaks and how much break, there's a good reason that science is changing that. And it's for the right reasons. It's not out of the goodness of some employer's heart, by the way. It's based on a, quite a little bit of research. And it's looking at people and performance and times of day and so on. And I think the best employees can look at that control element and where possible Try and hand over some of that autonomy in the control to the performer because they'll know when they're at their best. They'll know they'll take the break at the right time. It requires a degree of trust, etc. So that's the second one. So we've got demand and control. The third one is support. So we can look at that. Where do we need support? Who needs support? What are we missing? And it's that sense, whether that be emotional support, physical support. Does that make sense? The support yeah. of a particular skill. The, the, the support of a coach, a mentor, it's all that kind of, you know, peer, peer group reflection, learning, and all those sort of things. What support can we do? So there's the third one. The fourth one is relationships. Now, how many, they, t they say people don't leave uh, companies, don't they? They leave bosses. Um, yeah, yeah, it's true. I think it's CRPD quote. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. A lot of my experience says so. So actually, look at the relationships that exist. What, stop turning a blind eye to bad behavior, no matter what the level, but no matter what the role, the rank or authority, okay? We shouldn't allow it. You know what? Because that's a potential stress factor. And we do know the stress affects performance. And I'll explain why in a moment if you want me to, briefly. So look at relationships. That's internal relationships, external relationships. They're all relevant to the performance of your industry and people. And certainly within your team and associated teams, across teams. Remember, they're called departments, but they're, they have one thing in common, always. They work for the same business and they impact significantly on the success of that business. Let's not forget that. We're not working in isolation, we shouldn't be. We're working as part of a human skeleton, but we're just doing it as a business. And every joint is a different department. And fluid mechanical efficiency occurs because we work and all those parts work together, exactly the same as business. The last two is change. Now, oh, here we go. One of, the, one of the areas to watch is change. Now, what should we watch about change? We should watch 
the timing of change. We should look at the, the relevance or potential impact of change that we know about on the, the, the people. We should look at the speed of the change, why we are changing, you know, and have we got the, there's so many factors, but look around change, start to identify areas and significant, because that's a big cause. And the, and the final one is role. Now, this is to do with conflict of understanding, conflict of interest, crossover in terms of authority. Just make sure that there is absolute clarity around the purpose of everybody's role. No crossovers in terms of responsibility. You know, no uh, conflict that isn't dealt with. All these potential factors. So just to recap, six areas and answer your question to look at to minimise the effects of stress in the workplace. Demand, control, support, relationships, change and role. Okay. Excellent. And you did say you could you could briefly mention how stress can impact on performance. So, uh, yeah, may, may I ask for your experience in that area? Yes, for sure. Okay. Let's not get too scientific here, but I'll answer it in the quickest way. I don't know if the viewers or listeners, sorry, have ever heard of a sympathetic nervous system. The yes. sympathetic nervous system and the reptilian brain, okay, that triggers it. What's it for? It has one purpose and one purpose only. Survival. That's what it's for. It goes back to prehistoric times, early man, woman, okay, saber-toothed tiger jumps out. We need to react. To survive, it needs to be instant. So understand this is so relevant. The reaction of the stress response is 100% involuntary. Oh, so how do we train it? You don't train the response. It will always be involuntary. But what you can train is the perception of the threat. So, for example, if I take my fire service days, imagine being on a fire, fire engine, fire appliance, and you've been in 30 years, and you drive around the corner, you see a particular incident, flames and stuff like that. That person is going to see that so many times, lived to tell the tales, worked out lots and lots of ways how to deal with it. That's going to be a very controlled, thoughtful response. They're going to be acutely aware, aren't they, of the world around them. They're going to be uh, in control of their thought process. They're going, to, they're going to have the ability to communicate calm and rational. They're going to believe that they can bring this to a close safely. They'll have confidence in their own ability, yeah? They'll be enthusiastic, all these things. Now, let's skip around the whole level of that and look in the back, and we've got a brand spanky new, fresh out the box, new firefighter who's, who's just come out of training school, sees this for the first time. Imagine the reaction. What they're seeing, they're seeing a genuine threat to themselves. This, this is a threat. I could die here. So actually what happens in the stress response is a number of things. You get physiological, emotional, and behavioral adaptations that occur to keep you from dying, basically, surviving. So I'll give you a couple of these. So the joints stiffen. Because if we're going to pack a punch you know, against saber-toothed tiger, we can't be floppy. We need to be really stiff. We've got to, if we're going to outrun them and react and speed off quickly, we need to be stiff. Our heart beats faster. Adrenaline is produced to ensure that the heart keeps beating faster. There's stiffness again in, in our neck. Uh, our gut shrinks. Our pupils dilate. Our vision. What happens to our vision, by the way? It narrows. It narrows so massively because we are looking to land one punch to survive. We're looking at the smallest gap that we might get through to get out of this scenario. Now, how many of these do you think are conducive 
to controlled, enthusiastic performance. Listen, when we're in tough situations, we need people that have the ability to still be acutely aware of the world around us, that have control within their breathing, that, that are not got tension, headaches, and dizziness brought about this stiffness in their neck and shoulders. But th yet this is the response. So actually what we do, how do we deal with this? How do we prepare this stress response to actually not sit? We give people skill, right? We also give them knowledge so their confidence goes up, not the same threat. If they're going to give a, a talk to the boardroom, we prepare. We don't just throw them in there. We prepare them for it. We give them support. We give them training. We might do a practice run. Does, that, does this all make sense? So that actually, what yeah, 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 yeah. So the perception of the potential threat is not the same as if we just throw them into it. That's it. It makes total sense to me. Um, I think you know, there's a lot of uh, well-known sayings that you people will be able to familiarise themselves with. I'm a visual learner anyway, but you think about being thrown into the lion's den, which is a bit like being thrown into that boardroom scenario. We don't yeah. tend to do it. You want to make sure people are prepared. You want to make sure that you rehearse, that you have the support of those around you before you give that presentation. And I guess if you've been asked to give it, that, that there's enough positives in there in the first place that you've been trusted to, to deliver it so no I think it's the way you've I mean as I say I've been sat there creating images in my mind of, of, of picturing the follow and picturing the newbie and, and all the feelings that might go with it so for me it's it's, it's great and I hope other listeners are doing the same yeah. but we, we referenced that stress response if you like then to high performance and you are a, a very experienced high performance coach so when when people talk to you about high performance and i'm sort of doing the air quotation marks here what does a high performance team really mean what are the characteristics of, of high performance so how do we define performance versus high performance people actually ask me what's a performance coach versus a high performance coach a, a, a performance coach i think works with somebody to, to develop you know a performance to a, a good level whatever that is high performance people work with people that are already successful so that, I'm glad you referenced that. I'm going to jump in slightly, Graham, because my initial thought would have been good marketing. It sounds terrible. <laughs> but when someone says, difference between performance coach and high performance coach, I'll go, well, that's good marketing. You know, right? you want to be seen as a better a better performance coach. But I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry to, to, to bring it down a level or two, which I didn't mean to do, but it was the image that created in my mind. But actually, you're able to reference there is a genuine difference between the two as well, because you're talking about people that are, well, I'll let you continue it. But I'm just going to let you know, that was the image that, that came to me, to my mind, when you asked, what is the difference i go well that's it's good marketing <laughs> yeah let's talk about some real metrics here when you think about high performance i i think about high performance people i believe deliver high quality in what they do they actually deliver high levels of productivity for example higher levels of productivity but more importantly they do both they actually are able to deliver high levels of productivity at high quality and on time and meet the needs of the end user, et cetera. So if we think about peak performance, there you go. Let's have a look. So we're striving for peak performance. Let's break that down into three kind of scenarios to get you to consider what this looks like. One of them for me is kind of that, you know, that single biggest, best one-off moment that you ever did. So working with a company to achieve that. A high-performance people will work beyond the end position. You become high-performing because it's, it's at the top level of what you do. 
or what people do, you know, that, that part that you're in. So for example, let's make it even strip it back even more. Um, the, the personal best one-off would be the fastest time you ever ran. Yeah. The highest you ever jumped, yeah. the furthest you ever threw, the one-off. That that can unquestionably be defined as peak performance for me, high performance, on a personal scale, by the way, because it's all, you know, obviously progress and success is relative to the individual in a linear context. You know, it's just step after step or whatever, progress. But globally, of course, we can measure ourselves in that kind of world. And we can do that in business too, because there'll be comparatives most of the time. Industries that do the same thing, similar things. So we've kind of got that measure, haven't we? So we know what that single moment looks like when we did better than anybody had ever done, yeah? So it says anybody had ever done. And then, of course, there's the next bit where you kind of achieve the highest thing. Now, this might be really surprise you, but something like only about 10% of people that win Olympic medals actually do a lifetime best to win it. Now, there are many factors to that, all right? But what we're saying here, so in industry... Is not necessarily the most we've ever produced in a day to win this, but it but the amount that we needed to win the, the biggest deal. So there's the day when we produce yeah. more widgets than we've ever produced. Wow, what a moment. And have a look at what that's high performance. High performance is also producing enough to win the best possible deal. And then I look at it in a third sense, and that is what I call peak flow. So that's the ability to sustain that high quality and high production for a sustained period of time. I think all of those can be defined as high performance. Yeah, I totally agree. I think you've done that really well. I know that you don't believe that, uh, you know, people stumble across greatness. That's that's not something that you think happens. So I wonder if you could share some of the main areas of focus that you think about when developing high performance. How do you get someone to achieve greatness? Perhaps they've never achieved it before, but what would be some of the steps you would take to, to developing it? Yeah, for sure. That's right. Let me confirm. You're absolutely right. I know of no examples. Please, listeners, send me somebody, and I'm just curious if there is one. Nobody's. I offer that all the time. Nobody's ever wrote to me, called me, and give me something. The people I work. They reference it in Bounce as well, don't they? The book Bounce is all about you know yeah. not you know developing it over ten thousand hours of meaningful yeah, practice sure. or, and things like that. You know, you, you, you generate yeah. it. it so, so people don't just stumble across it. It's very. It's literally very carefully thought about. It's performance gold. Uh, and then there's a strategic approach, generally. Like I said, we don't sort of follow our nose and get lucky. Successful people have a real strategy to deliver it. So what are the areas? Let me give you a couple of simple areas here. I want to talk about this idea of performance goals, by the way, because it's kind of a great, a great starting point for me is actually at the end. The reason it kind of needs to be at the end, the starting point, either in a vision or, or, or a desire to be, look like something. Now, just to have a statement of intent is not a good goal. What you do need to do is you need to be able to break down this statement of success into real, insightful, objective metrics. So by that, I mean, if, if we are going to be the number one company in the world producing this high quality of what across the globe. Okay, that might be the dream, but actually what, what does it look like to achieve that? What do we need? We would need a particular set of skills, wouldn't we? We would need a particular outlet of people, um, so many customers, you know, financial support, backers, collaborators. So you're kind of breaking it down. And 
And I think once you do that, when you're looking at developing success, it helps you to identify where progress needs to be, could be, should be made. Because you're gonna, it's kind of that classic gap analysis. If success looks like this, where am I now? What, where do we need to evolve? So there's the first one. The second one, of course, when you've done that is to involve everybody in the business. Because by involving everybody, you have their, you know, they're enthusiastic, they're engaged, they take ownership uh, as much as possible, and you collect ideas. Don't limit the performance of your organization, team, or whatever it is. Be restricted or limited by one person's genius, one person's imagination. Share it. All right. Now, don't miss the opportunity to share that. That's that. I would do that too. Okay, the third one, of course, when you've done a strategy and you've, you've worked out how you decide you're going to do it, is to put together a team of experts. Put together a team of people in every field that you need that can deliver it, that you need to deliver it, much like I did with Jonathan. You know, but when you've got a team of experts, the other thing that you still need is you need accountability within each and every one of those experts. So how do we get people to be happy to be held to account? Let me share my thought on that. I tell you what you do. If you've got people in your team with clarity around their purpose, what it is that they're supposed to do, right? Not just the role, but the relevance of what they do in relation to the team and then the team's relationship to the wider organization. And if I choose to do brilliant here, what's the potential gain for the organization. Actually, if I choose not to have a good day or indeed not meet that deadline, what's the actual impact? It's kind of that sense of purpose that I'm talking about. The next thing you do is you make sure that you create an environment of mastery. That's the ability, right, for every single person in your team, 360 degrees or organization, on any given day to be the very best possible version of themselves. And the reason I say that is because there are so many factors into how performance progresses. It starts with education. It starts with teaching, the quality of the teaching. When you teach people something, they're not skillful. They're at a point of acquisition. So we need to make sure that their environment develops that acquired knowledge. We need to be able to learn how to apply it practically in a highly skillful way until we become experts. Everything you say just sounds just, it, it just resonates. It resonates really, really well. Um, and I'm sure will be for the listeners as well. Something that, um, it's, it's quite unique, Graham, to have someone on a podcast like this who's got experience in coaching and coaching and performance in particular across so many different areas. You, you've talked a lot in depth about your experience, obviously, coaching athletics. We've talked about coaching performance within a business context. You've referenced a few times today your experience, say, or 30 years' experience working with the North Hampshire Fire and Rescue Service, where yeah. you, know, you were supporting a fire station in Kettering. Now, that must have involved coaching of a very different nature presumably you'd have been coaching and leading teams in very incident response related environments real pressurized environments where you know some of the things you've talked about in relation to stress and resilience must have really had to come to the fore so what was that experience like i mean i learned a tremendous amount there and of course that was where i began my journey of leadership okay and of course, now, as you quite rightly said in, in the pre-bit, I, I'm now a, a, an accredited trainer for the ILM and CMI in terms of leadership. And what I bring with those courses is obviously this huge insight from working with hundreds of CEOs, MDs, yeah, across that. So in answer to that question, one of the things a fire service does for you 
And the change in environment within the fire service was the reduction in the numbers that we had available to us on a fire engine, believe it or not. It's as simple as that. So I listened to sort of industry. And when I began, we would pretty much 30 years ago ride with six people all the time. And those six people would all have a role, okay? In order to be successful as a whole unit, there was a couple of things that the leader needed to make clear. That was... They had to know exactly what, they had to have clarity around what it is that they were needing to do. They had to understand how that they could apply their skill and the need for that skill to be applied in a highly effective, timely way, all right, for the whole team to be successful. The listeners and myself wouldn't have had experience of the life and death level of coaching. And as you say, I guess people have to have absolute clarity in terms of what their roles and responsibilities are, because... If there, if it's, if there isn't absolute clarity, then ultimately it could be a life and death situation as a result, right? And the thing is, as well, I, there's a couple of things. Let me share a couple of really, I, I think, useful insights into to, to my time in the fire service. One of the great celebratory things I think about some of the success that we, we should celebrate is when you see the best version of, of a fire crew, it's the ability to be skillful in a highly stressful world. So how do we practice that? That's very difficult. Now, listen, Aristotle, I'm sure, will be absolutely delighted to know that I agree with him. All right. That, um, <laughs> he said, excellence is not an act. It's a habit. We are therefore what we practice. So think about that kind of world. How do you practice to be able to perform with that kind of when you when you can't reproduce that? So we have to create and be innovative in our thinking in our practice to try and recreate as close as possible those kind of scenarios where we apply and impose potential stresses, stresses that can affect us as people in a physiological sense, in, a, in an ego sense, in a respect sense, does that make sense? You know, in a status sense, self-esteem, all these things, and actually learn how to still be skillful. Now, I want to give you a word, even if it's towards the end, I, I think we're there-ish, but I, I want us to make sure that we look at this word of purposefulness, all right? It's, it's my favorite word in the world um, as a performance coach. I, I love its word. I love the intent. I love what it says. Per, if you want to be excellent, all right, and excellence is a habit, it means we have to practice in a very purposeful way. So purposefulness in your business, have a look around your business and look at how people work, how they behave, all right? Working, if it doesn't have significant meaning, if it doesn't have uh, real relevance, and if it's not going to impact significantly on the end result, then you need to ask why we're doing it. And then we start to move in a world of culture, and there's another podcast for another day, I'm sure. Um, wow. Yeah, huge. It's it's a great way. We've kind of gone full circle with it as well, which I think is brilliant. Purposefulness again relates back to the book you also mentioned. I'll put um, a link in the episode notes to, to bounce because that talks about purposeful, meaningful practice in there as well. But um, listen, I've got a huge amount of respect and admiration for everything you've done, Graham. It's been a fantastic talk. It's been a whistle stop. I can't believe how quickly the time's blown. So thank you so much for your insights. I must ask, actually, well, while it's in the news today, uh, I read in the, this morning that the Tokyo Olympic Games still going to go ahead as scheduled this year. Um, but if it does, are there any UK athletes we should all be looking out for that you've been involved in coaching or that we should all keep our eyes on? 
Um, yeah, okay, so there's a couple of people, I think keeping your eyes on that I know very well, but I've not been involved with, of course, the ladies' uh, time to play this year for sure. Uh, Katerina Johnson-Thompson in the heptathlon, of course, world champion last year uh, and beat the incredibly amazing French girl, uh, Nafi Tian. So watch Katerina Johnson-Thompson. I think Dina Asher-Smith, of course, who, um, you know, first British athlete ever in history to win 100-200 gold double last year in Doha. I was there to watch it. Yeah, I think those two are the big watches. You know, a lot of expectation on those. On a personal level, uh, you know, I'm actively involved in the coaching of the very young, talented Neve Emerson, world junior champion at 19, Commonwealth Games bronze medalist at 19, uh, now only just turned 21. Uh, and of course, you know, already outscored in the heptathlon, Jessica Ennis for her age, Katerina for her age, Kelly Southerton, Denise Lewis, all these Olympic medalists. So she's already outscored them. So, yeah, keep an eye on the youngsters like that too. Amazing. Yeah. Well, we'll be looking for that with anticipation. A huge thank you, Graham. If people want to find out more about yourself and your services, I know that obviously I'll put a link to uh, gatewayhr.com in the episode notes. But um, anywhere else they can find out more about yourself, Graham? Um, I think that's probably the best way to do it. If, if you contact me through, um, obviously put the email there and the link through Gateway, I think that would probably be uh, the best way. Um, I do a bit of social media. I'm not going to pretend I'm very good on it. So, uh, But, yeah, you'll find me on LinkedIn. Uh, you'll find me on Twitter, which, uh, yeah, I really don't use. Uh, but definitely LinkedIn, a bit of WhatsApp. So, um, yeah, a little bit of social media. Uh, but, yeah, please link them up. And uh, I'd welcome any conversations. Uh, and, of course, you know, this is just one area. If it's to do with people and performance, relationships, communication, if it's about culture, if it's about, you know, the art of feedback, all these sort of things, values and behaviors, then there's there's best part of 10 years now working across, you know, some major international business, helping people to, you know, set up some really good uh, working practices and cultures that, you know, with significant return on investment. So, uh, yeah, of course, always happy to talk to anybody who wants to chat. Thank you for the invite, Nick. Pleasure. I'll make sure those links are in the episode notes. I'll add as well that Gateway HR put on a number of brilliant webinars that I know Graham is very often the keynote speaker for as well. So if you are interested in signing up for future webinars, finding out more about what Gateway HR uh, offer, then do check out that website. Just to mention it again, it's gatewayhr.com. But I will put a link direct in the episode notes. Of course, if you are an HR or L&D professional listening to this podcast and you've got an HR recruitment requirement that you'd like some support with, please also get in touch with myself. I'd love to show what a great recruitment experience can look like and you can reach out to me directly at nick at jjrecruitment.com or give me a call 01727 800 377 i will of course put my own links as well in the episode notes that just leads me to say another huge thank you to Graham Ravenscroft, uh, Ravenscroft for joining me today and i look forward to bringing you the next episode of the hr lnd podcast real soon look after yourselves and each other thank you Thank you so much for tuning into the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO of JGA Recruitment Specialist HR Recruiters. If you need any help with the current HR or L&D vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.